This morning we're going to be talking about the life of Gideon, the reluctant hero. So if you brought your Bibles today or if you have a device that you can look this up on, it's in Judges chapter 6. We'll also be looking at Judges chapter 7. And as you're looking for that, I just want to start this by telling you that when our children were young, we would read, Cindy and I would read them Bible stories, often at night before they went to bed. And I especially remember when I got to the book of Judges and I was reading to our sons, Derek and Chad. And like typical boys, they absolutely loved the stories in Judges. The stories were so full of adventure that our boys were totally captivated by them. One of their favorites was the story of Ehud, known as the left-handed judge. That's found in Judges chapter 3. I'll tell you that because I'm not going to tell you why that was their favorite. You'll have to look it up this afternoon to find out why. But they would ask me to tell them those stories over and over again. Well, here's a little bit of a background to the book of Judges as we come into it. We start back uh, long before the book of Judges with Moses who was called by God to lead God's people, the children of Israel, out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, and take them into the promised land. And as he did that through miraculous signs, through miraculous actions, uh, they got to the very edge of where they were supposed to be, and the people of Israel didn't trust God. They were ruled by their fear, and so God said, okay, then you can just wander around here, while we wait for this generation to die off, which was 40 years. And at the end of that period, God called Moses to heaven. And the man who became the next leader of the children of Israel was a man who had been Moses' right-hand leader, and his name was Joshua. And he took the people into the promised land across, miraculously, across the Jordan River, And then as they captivated the people there and settled into the land, he was their leader for many years. That takes us right up to the beginning of the book of Judges. And then God called a series of 12 different people to be the leaders, the judges of Israel. This is when we begin to see uh, three different themes pop up in the book of Judges. The first one is that suffering often begins at the top with leadership. History has proven that people often suffer great injustices due to the poor decisions of their leaders. The book of Judges provides a few examples of leaders who served God and then their people were rewarded with peaceful times. But it also tells of many leaders who turned to false gods and reaped the evil results of their unfaithfulness to God. Here's theme number two. People often impede their own progress. We can't blame all of our problems on leadership because just like us, the Israelites knew what God wanted from them. They knew his commands, but they simply chose to disobey. And instead, they followed their own desires and their sin led to disasters such as the one found in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So sometimes, oftentimes, we find our suffering is due to our own defiance and our poor choices. And that's when we need to realize our need to cry out to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. So we've seen theme number one is the suffering often starts at the top. 
Theme number two, that people often impede their own progress. And the third theme is God uses flawed people. And this is what I want to focus on today. Let me start by giving you three examples of judges that God used who were very flawed people. The first one is the one you're probably the most familiar with, Samson. He was an incredibly gifted man with leadership ability, charisma, and what we probably all remember the most, right? Superhuman strength. But he was also set apart by God as a Nazarite. But in addition to that, he was self-centered, prideful, and full of lust. The second man that I want to point out to you was a man named Jephthah, who was so impetuous that he made a vow to sacrifice the first thing that he saw come out of his house when he returned victorious from a military campaign. And what was that first thing that he saw? His own daughter. And then we're coming to the man that we're going to look at today, Gideon, who was so weak and so insecure that it took miraculous signs, yes, plural signs, to goad him into action and to quit making excuses to God. Now, in setting up this narrative, we need to look at the last sentence of Judges chapter 5 before Gideon enters the picture. Chapters 4 and 5 are telling the story of another judge, Deborah, obviously a woman, who was a, a very good judge and led the people of Israel to overthrow the captivity that they were in. And we're told at the uh, end of that, in uh, the last verse of chapter 5, it says, Then there was peace in the land for 40 years. So it's at the end of this 40-year period that we begin with chapter 6. And it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So after 40 years of peace, religious syncretism sets in. What that means is, uh, it's a combining of multiple religions which diluted of anything that is meaningful. So this religious syncretism had brought about political instability, and the Midianites had reduced the Israelites to living as fugitives in their own promised land. Now this is where we're going to begin the story at, at uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the, the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out to help from the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, we see cycle after cycle of obedience that led to victory for God's people, only to be followed by disobedience, which brought judgment. And this is where we find the Israelites here at the beginning of chapter 6. During these seven years, the Israelites had to hide themselves in the mountain caverns and caves, living as refugees and as uh, uh, fugitives in their own promised land. 
But God wasn't done delivering his people in the midst of that dark and dangerous time. And so it says in verse 12 of chapter 6, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, calling him a mighty hero. Now, let me take just a few minutes to explain about this this, uh, character called the angel of the Lord. He's seen on a, a number of occasions in the Old Testament. And whenever he is seen, he is described with attributes that belong to God and to God alone. In addition, he is addressed as the Lord. Now, when you see in certain translations of the Old Testament, uh, the word Lord in all capital letters, that is referring to God's personal name, Yahweh. And so if this is the case, then the angel of the Lord is not a created being. Now, did you catch that? Angels are created. They are not eternal like God the Father and the Trinity. So if this is the case, the angel of the Lord is not a created being like angels, but God himself who took on angelic form and is most likely the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth for these short periods of time in the form of an angel, the angel of the Lord. The theological word for that is theophany. So getting back to the story, the angel of the Lord just called Gideon a mighty hero. Really? There's a lot of irony in that statement. At the time that the angel of the Lord declared Gideon to be a mighty warrior, where was he? He was at the bottom of a pit hiding while he threshed his wheat. Hiding from the very people that the angel of the Lord told him that he was going to deliver Israel from. God instructed Gideon, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Gideon said, how can I rescue Israel? In verse 15, it says something very interesting. He says to the angel of the Lord, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So he's reminding this angel of the Lord that he comes from the smallest tribe in Israel and that he comes from the weakest clan in the smallest tribe of Israel and that he is considered the least in his family in the weakest clan in the smallest tribe. In other words, Gideon is telling God, I am a nobody from Runtsville. Gideon was shocked that God would address him as a mighty hero and choose him to be the rescuer of Israel. He knew that he didn't have extraordinary strength like Samson had. He knew he wasn't a great military leader like Jephthah. But that wasn't what God needed to accomplish a great victory. When God told Gideon that he was a mighty warrior and that he was going to use him, do you know what Gideon said? Verse 13. He said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. That is not only very selective memory. I think it's a very snarky and cynical response to God 
falsely criticizing God for not protecting his own chosen people. Gideon showed an ignorance to the reason for Israel's problem, which we remember is that they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, not that God just wasn't paying attention to them anymore. So first Gideon makes this statement out of his bad theology. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? In other words, if God is really on our side, nothing bad should ever happen to us, right? Don't uh, Let's not get all judgy on Gideon because we need to look at ourselves, right? Don't we do the exact same thing many times? Let me give you a couple of examples. You're just starting to get ahead financially, and you've set aside a little bit of money. I do mean a little bit. And instead of spending it, you're feeling pretty good about yourself because you actually put it in your savings account. And then your water heater rusts out. Or your refrigerator stops working. Or your car doesn't pass inspection. Or that refund you were expecting to get on your taxes, you actually now owe money to the federal government. And what do you think? Or sometimes even say out loud, Why, God? Why do you let this stuff happen to me? I love you, I go to church, I tithe, I try to live a moral life. And the implied message is, I'm a Christian, therefore God owes me a comfortable life. Let me give you another example, because maybe those kind of things don't shake your faith. Maybe you've weathered the financial storms or the the teenage rebellion of your kids. But now after a lifetime of serving God the doctor's diagnosis comes back and he says, you have cancer or Alzheimer's. And now you ask the question, why God? I've given you everything. I've lived my life for you. Why did you let this happen? There ought to be some kind of reward, even on earth, for living a godly life. Why do people who don't love you or follow you seem to live a pain-free life? And I have cancer. Gideon also shows his revisionist history of Israel, of what God has done. He says, And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's version of history said that God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and then he did nothing else for them. What about God's miraculous provision all of those years that he provided manna for them in the wilderness or brought out spring water from a rock in the middle of the desert? Or what about God raising up Joshua to be the leader of the people of Israel after Moses had died and leading them into the promised land? Or what about the miracle when they crossed the Jordan River, which was very similar to when he led the people of Israel through the Red Sea? Or what about the miracle of Jericho, when they didn't use anything military, and yet this mighty fortress of a city falls without one blow being given? What about the miracle of the sun standing still, so that the children of Israel could conquer their enemies while the day didn't progress? What about how God had saved the Israelites by the hand of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, all preceding Gideon as judges? 
And while Gideon does show that he has some knowledge of how God worked in the past on behalf of the Israelites, it's a highly selective and distorted knowledge. He shows that he not only does not remember or understand God's concern for his people, but he also shows a great lack of knowledge for the reason that they are in captivity to begin with, their disobedience. Do you and I do the same thing? Do we forget how God acted on our behalf in the past? Do we forget about his provision in our time of need? And do we forget how we really aren't even deserving of his blessing if it were based on our goodness? So what is God's response to this? It's certainly a very gracious response to Gideon's ungracious retort. In verse 14, he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He didn't reprimand Gideon. He didn't even correct Gideon. God simply continues on with his business with Gideon. He says, Go in the strength that you have and save my people. This is when Gideon pulls out his excuse of, I'm nothing special. I come from the smallest tribe in Israel. My clan is the weakest in that small tribe. I'm the least in my family. Now, how often have I either heard or even used a similar excuse? Something like, well, I'm no Billy Graham, or I don't have enough training or Bible knowledge to do what God's asking me to do, or I'm too young, people won't listen to me, or I'm too old. People find me irrelevant. Do you remember Moses' excuse when God told him to go before Pharaoh and obtain freedom from the Israelites? He said, I I don't even know how to speak. I don't know how to talk before people. One of my favorite pastors to listen to online is Pastor Greg Laurie, and he's fond of saying, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. In other words, God hasn't asked us to do something because we are so extremely capable. He asks us to do something because he is God. And because he is God, he can and will make us completely capable of finishing the task that he gave us to do. Now, after these excuses of why he shouldn't do what God told him to do, the angel of the Lord gives some signs to Gideon to show him that he will be doing this in the power of the Lord. Sign number one, Gideon makes a dinner for the angel of the Lord before he actually realizes who he is. So he prepares some meat and some bread, and he places it before the angel of the Lord, and then he pours broth all over it. And the angel of the Lord reaches out his staff and just touches that meal with his staff, and boom, instant barbecue. Flames are leaping up from this soggy meat and bread, completely destroying what whatever was there. I doubt there were even ashes left, just a warm, hot rock left. And then for good measure, the angel of the Lord instantly disappears. Now, wouldn't that freak you out? Gideon then knows exactly who has been talking to him. And he says, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In the New Living Living Translation, the way it's worded is, Gideon says, I'm doomed. 
And God has to calm Gideon down. He says, chill, dude, you aren't going to die. Well, that's not even New Living Translation. That's just my translation. So Gideon then builds an altar. He's going to make a sacrifice because he realizes who he has just been with. And then that night, God tells Gideon to dismantle his dad's altar that he had been sacrificing to a false god. He says, dismantle that, take one of your dad's bulls and sacrifice it on this new altar to the one true God. And so Gideon does the whole thing in the middle of the night because he doesn't want his dad to find out. He doesn't want his neighbors to find out what he's done because he's so scared of their response. So we see how Gideon has been afraid, he's been scared, and we've jumped forward now to verse 33. And it says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So the enemies have all come. They're getting ready to go to battle with Israel at this point. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abbey Ezraites, I had to learn that one, okay, were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him, and they sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Do you understand what's just happened here? Gideon, who was so scared that he was hiding in a hole, Gideon, who asked for sign after sign, Gideon, who was afraid to tear down an altar to a false god so much that he did it in the middle of the night, now has just sent out word to the children of Israel, hey, our enemies are here. I'm calling, I'm calling all of you to come together. Send me all of your soldiers. And they did it. So they recognize now that Gideon is God's messenger. He is the judge that God has sent for them. And yet Gideon still needs reassurance. He tells God he needs yet another miraculous sign. Now, this is the sign that most of us are, are familiar with, the fleece, right? Gideon says, I'm going to put out a wool fleece, which is basically just a sheepskin. He says, I'm going to put this out overnight, and when I get up in the morning, I want this fleece to be completely wet, but the ground all around it to be dry. And if that happens, I'll know, God, that you are on my side and that you are going with me. I have your strength. And that's exactly what happened. And so Gideon knew, right? No, he needed another sign. He thought, well, maybe that was just a coincidence. So what I'll do tonight is I'll put out that same fleece, and this time I want the fleece to be dry and the ground all around it to be wet. And that's exactly what happened. So now Gideon is ready to take on Israel's enemies because he's finally convinced that God will be going with him. Well, God and 32,000 armed soldiers, right? So we read now in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So God told Gideon, you don't need 32,000 men because I'm on your side. Send 22,000 home. 
So now Gideon has cut his army down to less than a third of what he originally started with. So I guess now we can say Gideon is going out to battle with 10,000 armed warriors, right? Wrong. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go, go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took their provisions in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now we're not going to focus on the way that God whittled down the number of the soldiers, because that's not the important message here. The important message of these verses is that it's important to understand the process is based on purely arbitrary criteria. The point is that God is reducing the number of fighting men to an extremely small number, less than 1% of what he started with in the beginning. And the reason for that reduction is stated very clearly in chapter 7, verse 2. And I want to read this to you from the New Living Translation. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. That's why God was making this group so small, so that they couldn't take any of the credit. Gideon didn't know that God had chosen him to demonstrate something about God himself, that he chooses what is weak and humble to accomplish his grand purposes. In fact, God's chosen method to accomplish his most important purpose in the world, reconciling the world to himself, was for Jesus, the Son of God, to become weak by becoming human. Jesus chose to set aside the strength and the power and the majesty and glory that had been his since before the foundation of the world to become flesh, to become vulnerable to the point of death. And you know what else? God intends for us to reflect something of himself as we not only accept, but also embrace weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My power works best in weakness. The Lord said to Paul, which enabled Paul to say, So now I am glad to boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ can work through me. I have four lessons that I think we can take away from this today. The first one is, we live in dark times, just like Gideon did. I really don't need to convince you of that, do I? The COVID pandemic, people out of work, racial injustice, rioting in cities across the nation. Is God still on his throne? Yes, he is. Why hasn't he done something to change our circumstances? Well, let's go back to Judges 6.1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. 
We want instantaneous change, but that is rarely God's plan because we don't grow through instantaneous justice. Habakkuk 2.3 says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Psalm 27.14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Lesson number two, Gideon felt like a nobody, unqualified to do anything of significance for the Lord. Remember, he was the nobody from Runtsville. He was so afraid of the people he was called to defeat that he was harvesting in a hole. He was so afraid of his neighbors finding out and his father finding out that he was going to tear down his father's altar to a false god that he did it in the middle of the night. He was so worried that God wouldn't really help him that he asked God for a sign over and over and over again just to make sure. Remember, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Has God made it clear to you that he wants you to do something? Do you feel up to the task, or do you feel that the task is greater than your ability? Trust God, obey Him, and then watch Him work through you. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This isn't just about being a leader either. Has God called you to tell your neighbor about Jesus' love and forgiveness? course he has. Do you feel up to that task? I would guess most of us don't most of the time. Step out in faith, fully prayed up, and open your mouth. Lesson number three, don't have a faulty memory of how God has worked in your life. I found one of the best ways to do this is to recite your blessings. And maybe some of you remember that old hymn, Count Your Blessings. I want to read just a couple of lines from that. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged or disheartened. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. So tell yourself Tell your family how God has provided, how he has healed relationships, how he has sustained you through difficult times and illnesses. And then lesson number four, God is going to receive the glory. Do you remember why God reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 fighting men to 300? Judges 7-7 tells us the answer. With 300 men, I, God, will save you. Gideon could never take credit for that victory. The circumstances were too ridiculous. No one in the thousands of years since this event happened has ever been tempted to say they won that battle in their own strength or because of Gideon's military leadership. 
No, everyone then and everyone now knows the reason Israel defeated the Midianites is because God acted. Can I give you a present-day FAC example? When I came here almost seven years ago, we had a mortgage balance on this worship center of almost $1 million, 992000 at that time. Five years later, the balance was still nearly $700,000. In the fall of 2018, we were prepared to launch a giving initiative to eliminate the mortgage balance. And I remember praying, asking God that he would do it in a way that we could never receive the credit for it, that only God would get the glory. Right before we began that giving initiative, our senior pastor resigned, but we decided to go ahead and move forward. Does that make any sense? It doesn't. That's strike one. For the first seven months of that giving initiative, we did not have a senior pastor. Then we called Pastor Mike to be our lead pastor, and he had never been a lead pastor before, and so obviously he had never led a congregation through a giving initiative. That's strike number two. This past winter, we entered into a global pandemic that led to the unemployment rates spiking from 3.5% in February to nearly 15% in April. Many of the people in our church were furloughed and not receiving a paycheck. And for three months, we didn't have in-person services, so obviously we weren't even passing an offering plate. That's strike three. And what's happened? As of this week, our mortgage balance is down to $18,243. Does that make any sense at all? It doesn't. So what's happened? Why does it, why, what is the explanation for that? God did it. Yes, he did it through the generosity and the faithfulness of his people, but let's not kid ourselves. This is a God thing. God will receive the glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do live in dark times, just as Gideon did. But just as you had not abandoned Gideon or your people, you have not abandoned us. Remind us of that, Father. We need to hear that. Many of us feel unqualified for what we know you have called us to do. Would you teach us to trust you and obey you? And Father, help us to remember how you have acted in our past, how you have sustained us, how you have healed us, how you have mended broken relationships, freed us when we couldn't go on ourselves. And Father, help us to remember that it's not us that will receive the glory, but that it's you. In Jesus' name, amen.